My handle is Jonathan Blade. Welcome to my podcast. So, I felt it was time for another potpourri episode. Uh, potpourri episodes are basically uh, what I've been watching or what I've been consuming episodes. And a lot has come out in the recent time. And I don't know if for these episodes I'm supposed to lead with the thing that people want to hear about or I lead with the thing they want to talk about, but I guess I'll lead with the thing that people want to hear about, which is WandaVision. Yeah, I watched episode 9, the climactic episode of WandaVision uh, today. I was lucky enough to have a day off, so I used it to consume lots of media, basically. And the first thing I did was watch the last episode of WandaVision, and it was good. Uh, the series itself uh, was a nice treat for people that had, had been without Marvel properties for or new Marvel stuff for a year, and uh, I really enjoyed WandaVision. It was something different, and the last episode was a little bit less different. It had a little bit of Marvel-style punch-up at the end, a little blue beam in sky. It was almost like a blue beam in sky thing going on at the end. But overall, I enjoyed it. And I didn't have the same expectations that other fans had to see certain characters or for the show to follow specific storylines or to be an introduction for other properties. But I did have an expectation that there would be a satisfying resolution or a satisfying place that Wanda and Vision's relationship would end up. And it's not quite the case. So the show is really about Wanda. It's not about Vision. It's about Wanda, and Vision is just another supporting character. But it's called Wanda Vision, so I thought he would be important enough for that story. Uh, with the elements introduced to go somewhere, and they just kind of left his story hanging. So I found that unsatisfying, but I did like Wanda's ending, and her costume that she had in that final episode was, mwah, it was chef's kiss. It's beautiful. Mm -mm -mm. So yeah, big thumbs up for WandaVision. If you haven't watched it, it's breezy. I think most episodes are half an hour or less, and then that last episode's a little bit longer, but uh, yeah, you can easily watch it in a day, day and a half. So, check out WandaVision. Uh, beyond that, uh, today I also watched Coming to, the number two, America. And Coming to America is the legacy sequel of 1988's Coming to America, an Eddie Murphy movie that is revered in uh, black culture. It presents, and Eddie did this a couple times, he, he presented worlds that were populated by black folks who were not, that were not invested in the porn of suffering. It wasn't about poor black people, uh, not about crime or drugs or being oppressed by the man. They were just about black people living their lives in sometimes special circumstances. So the original Coming to America had some middle class black folks and it had these fantasy royalty black folks from Zamunda. And if you've never seen Coming to America, Zamunda is a fantasy African country that is like 
It's like Wakanda if Wakanda was colonialized, but then at some point the Zamundans were able to push out the colonizers and retain their resources, the resources that were being stolen by the colonizers, but had absorbed at least some of the colonial culture into themselves. That is what uh, Zamunda's like. But Coming to America, the original 1988 movie, is... A classic. It's still fun, it's still funny, really enjoyable. Coming to America 2 is a movie that exists, and there are people in it who are familiar to you, and I'm glad that some of these actors get to work again, because I probably haven't seen a lot of those faces since 1988. Very cool. Nice, I guess. But it definitely doesn't live up to its legacy. It's, it's underwritten... And it sets up a lot of interesting threads that it just lets peter out. It just lets piddle out as it tries to not do anything specifically. It just tries to pay homage to as many of the old jokes as it can. And it kind of exists culturally in a stasis of maybe representing the culture 30 years ago. There's a lot of uh, elements, a lot of music, a lot of people that seem to be frozen in time there. And it's that's not a bad thing. It's not a bad movie. It's just not good. It's not inspired. It's not great. Eddie Murphy's not not bad, but not inspired. He's he's there and everybody else is kind of there too. And I I blame the script mostly. Like people are talking about the effort that Wesley Snipes put in and he does have a, a charismatic character, but not much is done with what is set up there. That kind of piddles out too. And the movie ends with a big uh, classic comedy-style celebration. I felt like like Rodney Dangerfield was going to roll in and, and say, Beers for everyone! Or so. it just, it's, it's that kind of celebration uh, at the end of the movie. And it feels kind of unearned. So, yeah, I did not hate Coming to America, number two. But if you see it once, that's probably good enough forever. Oh, also, one more movie in there that I didn't watch today, but I've seen fairly recently, that I just want to big up, and that's Nomadland. Nomadland is incredible, and I think it just won the Golden Globe for Best Picture. I know it won for Best Director. So if you have not had the opportunity to see this movie, uh, it's on Hulu, and you should definitely see it. It is wonderful. It's So my take on the movie is different than everybody else's take, but it, it's considered to be a meditation on the failed American system, uh, how America has failed its citizens economically, and it's about people who live their life unanchored, I would say. They, they live their lives on the road in the Midwest, in the West, in vans and mobile homes, traveling from mobile home lot to mobile home lot, and living as a, a loose-moving community going from itinerant job to seasonal itinerant job. And there may be some people in the movie who represent this failed system, but the leads in the movie, and this may be my fault too, because I think I missed the first 10 or 15 minutes of the movie. I was distracted uh, before I really got into it. The leads in this movie, they all have some place they could be. They don't have to live this lifestyle. They could be living in a completely different lifestyle and they would be fine. And that's probably... Four of the main the the characters that you focus on, four or five of the characters you can focus on, could all be someplace else. They don't have to be living this lifestyle. But for me, it's it's a um, thorough like meditation on 
just separating from everything. And the lead, it's, it's, there's some sad bits. She's dealing with some emotions. And she takes this time that she has uh, given herself to separate from everything to kind of find herself and to deal with the grief that she experienced at the beginning of the movie. Her husband dies at the beginning of the movie, setting off, uh, setting the plot into motion. Not really a plot, but uh, setting her emotional journey into motion. And it's, uh, yeah, it's wonderful. Uh, and it's beautiful. It's it's a lovely movie. It's inhabited by uh, really naturalistic characters because a lot of the characters are actual people as opposed to actors. But the actors are doing a, a great job of just being people as well. So I give Nomadland my highest recommendation. So with that out there, let's see, one, two, three. We move on to what I've actually been watching uh, for the past few weeks, which started with... I ran into something on YouTube, and it was a couple of years old, but I hadn't seen it. A guy, a British guy, British black gent who works for an advertising agency, who's produced some animation shorts before, in concert with an animation uh, studio that the advertising agency worked with from time to time. He had this idea, he was on a trip. He's like, man, I sure think it would be so awesome if these giant robot animations, and just anime that I love, and that black people seem to love embraced black people back. And he came up with this idea just in that moment and sketched out a giant robot on paper with a little Caribbean boy. And from that, he approached the animation studio and developed this idea of this beautiful, it looks like a trailer, but it's, it's a short movie. It's like a minute and a half movie, but it looks like a trailer for a new TV show called Mighty Grand Piton. And in it, basically, this little girl and her family are flying from England to the Caribbean, where I guess their people are from. I'm trying to remember what specific island, uh, but it, I guess that's not terribly important. But the Grand Piton is uh, a mountain that's in this specific country. So they travel to the Caribbean. Little girl encounters the giant robot, and then they go on adventures and all the characters are black. They're all black Caribbeans. Yeah, the the bad guy who you get a shot of who looks really cool and is now my wallpaper. Black Caribbean, uh, her family. And it's just cool. It's it's beautiful. It looks like a Studio Ghibli piece uh, at the beginning. And then it transforms into that same quality, but uh, a more traditional anime look going forward. But it's just, it's beautiful. And it really sparked my imagination and made me remember how much I liked uh, giant robot properties uh, in my day. So it made me do a few things. Uh, first, I jumped on YouTube and started perusing uh, all the classic giant robot properties, starting with Mazinger Z, which was the first giant piloted robot in Japanese animation. And the older primitive stuff doesn't really do it for me, but as a, like a legacy presentation, it's interesting to see. But it also made me watch a movie that came out last year, I think, called Mazinger Z Infinite. And that was awesome. It presents all the characters, all the central characters in the Mazinger Z storyline. So there's Mazinger Z and his pilot. And these robots are they're just vehicles. They're not sentient, so it's not really his pilot. But Mazinger Z and its pilot, the Great Mazinga, which is the follow-up robot and follow-up series, and its pilot. And then some other situations from that particular line of anime but presented in a modern context with modern 3D renders, 
mixed with traditional animation and it's beautiful and its story is nonsense, but it flows well enough that it doesn't matter. Most anime stories are nonsense. I watched a bunch of stuff in this period of time that deals with concepts that are bigger than you can present on screen well. And it happily does that, like interdimensional stuff and universal affect stuff, things that could destroy the universe. But the scale presented doesn't quite make sense. Doesn't matter. This was beautiful. The action was great. I loved it. I actually bought it. I own it, and I will definitely watch it again. A lot of fun, that. But I watched that, and then some other properties. It reminded me of the Shogun Warriors that I collected as a child, which Shogun Warriors were domestic localizations of all of these giant robot super... They're called super robots. All these super robot properties, they're all separate properties, but they were brought under the Shogun Warrior toy line umbrella. And in the States, it was just the Shogun Warriors. There was no TV show they were connected to, no comic book, just the toy. They were incredibly popular. Some of them were like two feet tall. They had a bunch of die-cast five-inch ones. I had one. I think I had um, Die Gun, maybe. But they were really nice quality toys, and they were popular until Star Wars, and then all the other toy markets died after Star Wars, and everybody had to to hurry up and try to release toys in the vein of Star Wars and TV properties, all that stuff. But uh, before that, yeah, Shogun Warriors was huge. And then the real revelation was in 1984 or 1985. I stayed home from school sick one day. I don't remember if I was real sick or fake sick, but uh, this cartoon came on at noon. I don't know why they were releasing something at noon, but it was something I'd never seen before. It was amazing. It was an anime-style property, and it was beautiful to my eyes, and the the serialized storytelling was something different than I, what I was used to. It was incredible, and I'd encountered Star Blazers. I'd encountered some Maycross, but that stuff came on on Saturday morning, and I was my family was Seventh Day Adventist, so we didn't get it. We didn't get to absorb media on. Saturday morning, had to go to church and couldn't watch TV until the sun went down. But that's a whole different thing. But uh, yeah, so I, I this was my first real encounter with this kind of uh, media. I had my, had my cousins tell me about some of these other animes that had been domestically released, like Mazinger Z. Who, they lived in Detroit, and so they got some of those properties earlier. But yeah, I'm watching this property, and I'm like, this is incredible. So I go to school the next day, and I'm talking to the kids at the lunch table. And I'm like, I've seen this thing. It's a revelation. It's beautiful, and it's awesome, and it's got robots, and the robots come together to form a big robot. And they're like, yeah, that's uh, Mighty Orbots. And I was like, no, it's not. It's not Mighty Orbots. It's something else. And they were like, well, you were sick, so maybe you hallucinated the whole thing. And I couldn't remember the name of the thing, so maybe I did. But I didn't, because a few months later, they released it in... Kid Prime Time, which is like three to five or something. And it was Voltron. It was the original Lion Force Voltron, which was a huge success. It was huge. Uh, what had happened was World Events Productions, I think is the name of the studio, had purchased the rights to some Japanese shows for localization. And one of them was Go Lion. And in Japan, it was nothing. It was just another super robot series with a really sweet design, but in America, Voltron was a huge success, and the Lion Voltron had elements of magic and science blended together, and that robot was semi-sentient. It made for some interesting stuff going on, but the stories were not terribly interesting. It was mostly Monster of the Week stuff. Uh, So, although I liked Lion Voltron, 
What came next, Vehicle Voltron, was my jam. So there are three seasons of Voltron that were released in this period of time. There was Season 1, Lion Voltron. That's the end of the Go Lion story that they edited together to form the Lion Voltron cartoon. They connected it to another completely unrelated cartoon called Dairuger 15 in Japan, which was then brought to the American shores and then uh, cut and retranslated to form the second Voltron series. And then they, they created a connection between these two unrelated series. And the vehicle Voltron, the second Voltron series, involved space explorers and where the original Voltron force was a Sentai-style force. There was five members of the team. They flew five lines that came together to form Voltron. The vehicle Voltron force was 15 vehicles that were housed on this space exploration vehicle, and those vehicles would go explore planets, and then when they encounter trouble, and their trouble was this enemy empire, which made for some complex storytelling, actually, because, or the, the idea of complex storytelling, the Drool Empire, uh, their planet was about to die. They needed to find a place for their population to live for Earth, in the Voltron storyline, I don't think this was the same in Dairuger, but Earth was almost overpopulated, so they were looking for new planets to colonize with Earth's population. So these two entities came into conflict over resources, basically. And on the Drool side, and we spend a lot of time with the Drool, they also have a civil war because of the instability of the near death of the planet and cultural forces that are like, we cannot allow these invaders into our galaxy, but also we should probably work with these invaders because we need to find a place for our people to live. So the Drool had a civil war going on, and we spent a lot of time with the Drool, and it made for some interesting serialized storytelling, a story that developed over the course of the series. And this was something that was common in Japanese anime too, but a little bit less common in domestic anime or domestic cartoons at the time. They did Monster of the Week, Story of the Week stuff, all Every episode was a bottle episode for domestic uh, cartoons. So this Voltron, Vehicle Voltron Force, was something new for me. As far as following something weekly and watching the story evolve over time, I really liked the design of Vehicle Voltron, and I liked the fact that it was invested more in science, quote-unquote. And uh, yeah, it was more like Star Trek, where... The Lion Voltron was more like Star Wars, and I was a Star Trek guy because I grew up watching OG Star Trek. So with that said, uh, after watching the Grand Piton and absorbing all of this anime, all these super robot shows over the course of a couple weeks, I actually bought that second season, that Vehicle Voltron season of Voltron. Little tidbit, uh, there was a third season of Voltron, which was supposed to be a whole different giant robot show that they then translated into another Voltron show. But the lion robots proved to be so popular that they actually produced a season, a whole nother season of the lion robot Voltron that was not translated from Go Lion because Go Lion was over. It was the original 52 episodes. That was the end of that story. But they had changed it enough that they could produce another 20 episodes of a new story to continue out and uh, ride the SEO wave, or whatever you called it at the time, of the Lion Voltron. But with that said, I went and bought this second season, this Vehicle Voltron season, on Google Play, and I've been watching it, and I'm probably about 20-some episodes in. And you can't go home again. 
Yeah. I mean, it's not bad. It's not that it's bad. It's just a product of its time. The Vehicle Voltron show has some really interesting premises, but it doesn't really have any characters. Like, there's so many people. There's so many primaries. Uh, The Vehicle Voltron Force itself is 15 people, and you've got the crew of the ship. You have both the commander and the captain of the Explorer as mains. You've got the military uh, and royalty and all these high officials of the Drool Empire as main characters. There's just too many people to deal with, too many people to follow. And just the writing of uh, the way things are written at the time, you don't really spend a lot of time developing the characters. And also they take away some of the development in the translation because some of the development involves actual violence and actual trauma. Like there was an episode where somebody overcame the uh, adversity of that episode because they were remembering the lesson they learned when their brother died horribly. But they rewrote the episode domestically to make it so that he was just having a memory about an experience he had with his brother who did not die horribly, and it didn't quite make sense because of how it had been written, because kids can't deal with stuff, I guess, is what they thought in the 80s. So there's a lot of that, but also the aesthetic. Uh, Some of the stills are beautiful, and I do remember that, but the animation's bad. It's probably 60% reused animation per episode. I'm not talking about sequences. They have whole scenes that are recycled, but they have animations that are recycled on an episode-by-episode basis. Like, Voltron has this um, flying dropkick that he does, and the monster or the the machine, the robeast that he does it against may change from episode to episode, but that's the same animation of Voltron doing a flying dropkick every episode, and he does it almost every episode. It's a little bit ridiculous, but I still enjoy it. It's still a fine property, but I also, at about the same time, picked back up the Netflix Voltron Legendary Defender series, and I finished that off, and the difference is stark. It is, it's crazy how much storytelling for younger audiences advanced. So Voltron Legendary Defender is a show that's probably written for, I don't know, 12-year-olds, but it presents some really emotionally honest situations. It presents real characters, like real developed characters. So each of the main characters is a person they're not just a character archetype, not just a stereotype. They're developed over the course of time, and they change in meaningful ways over the course of time. And this is par for the course for good animation in the modern time, Steven Universe, or even something like Adventure Time, which I loved, does this. And that's just what well, well-written kids' properties do in the modern time. But it's so much different than even these kind of mature-for-their-time Japanese shows were. And Voltron Legendary Defender can get really silly in bits, and I guess that's for the younger part of the audience. Like, really silly. They have a character whose whole purpose is comic relief, which I do not like. You can have a comic relief character, but he has to be useful at some point. Don't be Tyrese from the Fast and the Furious movies, because I will resent your existence in this property that I'm enjoying. But, yeah, Voltron Legendary Defender is really good. It ends in a place where it kind of brings in qualities from the properties that came before it. Not only 
Lion Voltron, which it is based on, but some ideas from Vehicle Voltron, like the exploration ship, exploring the universe, some other characters who are actually functional and can do things that are not the Voltron Force, which is not something that you had uh, in the olden days. The tangent there is just to say that Voltron Legendary Defender is actually really good. And if you enjoy that kind of thing, you should watch it. Uh, it lost me at some point because it got too silly. But picking it back up, getting right past that silly moment. And then it was the same episode, too. There was something very poignant that happened. And then after that, it was just balls out action and dramatic development. And it ended someplace so crazy that you're like, yeah, of course the series ended here because they had nowhere to go. Like they did do everything in the kitchen sink in that last season. So that is definitely worth watching. I don't know if it'll have, well, of course not for me because I'm old now, but I don't know if it'll have the same resonance for the audience that it's made for now because they have so many more things to watch. But uh, Voltron, yeah, Voltron's awesome. And I think that's it. I think I covered all the things that I wanted to talk about on this episode. But if you'd like to talk to me about this episode or you'd like to talk to me about anything, you can hit me up on Twitter at... Janky old broke hobo Spider-Man at Jonathan Blade, and hopefully you'll be back for the next one. Thanks for listening. <laughs>